Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm really smiling to have as my guest a pal from back in the day. Dr. Joubert Gamma and I were at medical school together and have remained in touch ever since. Joubert always did things, I don't know, slightly differently from the way he dressed to his career path. And it's a joy to be able to share that with our listeners. As I said, Joubert graduated from Liverpool Med School and then underwent five years of postgraduate training in general practice. Dr. Gamma then obtained certification in pharmacoepidemiology and pharmacovigilance from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a diploma in pharmaceutical medicine and fellowship of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine at the Royal College of Physicians. When not pushing the boundaries of medical science, Joubert volunteers with various organisations, including MENCAP, which serves people with learning disabilities, the Rising Sun, an arts venue near where Dr Gamma lives, and other philanthropic groups. He's coached boys and girls soccer teams, loves watching our national sport, and listening to live music. Interestingly, he's appeared on a number of rather diverse TV shows, including Ready, Steady, Cook, several quiz and antique shows, and wait for it, Sex in the City. Welcome, my friend, Dr. Schubert. Thank you, John. I've always loved participating in extracurricular events and quizzes, really, from when I was very young at school. I, I always like to end my introduction with something personal, something out of the ordinary. And although many doctors have done TV interviews or, or medical documentaries, I don't know any who have been on quiz, antique and cookery shows. So yeah, you have to tell us a little bit more about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, uh, I love cooking. Um, I love I've had the, the fun, as you say, in various TV programs. But um, the story of Sex in the City is kind of very down to serendipity. So uh, many years ago, my wife, Michelle and I appeared on a first series of a UK home improvement show called Changing Rooms. Um, it wasn't a great experience, but that's a story for another time, John, over a beer, hopefully. So my daughter, Sasha, an avid Sex in the City watcher, many years later, suddenly shouted down, Dad, Dad, come here, see what's on TV. So she was watching an episode of Sex in the City. And in Miranda's living room, there was a TV on and there was a show on the TV and it actually was the episode of Changing Rooms that we had featured in and showed me quite clearly walking around doing various stupid things that the show required. So serendipity at its best. I always put it on my CV because I think it helps tickle people's interest. Actually, it's interesting you say that. There's a um, podcast which is sadly no longer being uh, put out there. It was called Listen to Lucy. She was a writer for the Financial Times and left that to become a teacher, bless her. And Lucy's podcasts were hysterical and poignant. And she did one all about CVs and said that it turns out the only thing that has any relevance to people's success is the part of the CV that says other. Everything else is BS. Other is what leads to people saying, ah, tell me about that. Because it's what defines you as a human, right? Yeah, and I've often been asked that as the first question <laughs> in any interview, even for pharmaceutical medical jobs. So it's uh, it's well worth having it in there, I think. Yeah, because it changes the tenor of uh, of the conversation. So I think I think it'd be fair to say that anyone who knows you would describe you as a very warm and engaging chap. And I always thought of you, even going back to med school. You just seem perpetually content and kind. And we've talked in the past about your ability to relate to people of all backgrounds and types and navigate sometimes tricky cultural waters. There, there are a couple of thoughts in my head, which I know I can't say on a podcast, but you're always very good at that. Where, where does that come from, do you think? Uh, you're very kind, John. I mean, I'd say exactly the same about you, to be honest. Um I mean, there are various influences, I think, that have contributed to to this and the way that I am. I think the main ones would be kind of my cultural background, family upbringing and religion. My family background or my roots are from a place called Goa 
uh, in India, which was for a number, well, about 400 years, was a Portuguese colony. Although I personally, I was born in, in Kenya, which at that time when I was born was a British colony. And then I moved to the UK for boarding school initially with my brothers until my parents then came over and settled in the UK. We've been always exposed to various types of cultures. So an Indian culture, an Indian Christian culture. I'm a Catholic by birth and by religion. And also kind of British culture and constantly having to shift and adapt, I think, between all of these cultures. So I think that's made me adaptable and my, my, my family adaptable and being involved in several cultures it has always made me really inquiring and keen I just love learning about people I love different cultures and also you know places I've been to have been a melting pot of people like the UK is so diverse culturally it's just amazing so whenever I meet anybody I kind of try and guess where they're from and in and, and these days it seems a bit you know, rude sometimes to ask somebody, are you from X, Y, and Z? But it's only because of inquiring, really. I mean, my, my parents, they brought my brothers and I up constantly to think of others first and have respect for all, irrespective of, I guess, what we would have called then colour, creed or class. And this is also clearly supported by the Catholic faith and just demonstrating kind of love for fellow human being and, and charity. And it's probably why I became a doctor, I guess, in order to help others. Yeah, it's um, it strikes me that you were perfect, uh, you know, call central casting and send me someone of diverse background who, who genuinely wants to be a doctor because you may not know this and I don't know if I've ever said it but you were a bit of a role model there were days that I would walk into the lecture theater not feeling particularly great certainly not having a great deal of self-esteem and you were sort of larger than life you know it, it, it's a bit of a trope isn't it to say oh I became a doctor to help people and then you meet some doctors who are miserable human beings these are pretty troubled times and social ills are diseases. And I think physicians taking leadership positions can make a difference. And I think we all need to do that. There's, again, someone who shall remain nameless in our year, who I know has learned several Indian languages because that's his patient population. Delights in, in everything that that brings, especially the cuisine. So good on you. I just wish people had a vision of you in some of the bright clothes you wore. <laughs> um, I wish I had some of those now. I still, I still yearn back for my platform shoes and purple trousers. But uh, those are those are the bygone era. I'll tell you what. So if you can dig out a photo, we'll stick it up on the show notes. Don't look or dress like someone who you think of as a pharmaceutical executive. So let's come on to that a bit about your career. What took you into the pharmaceutical industry? Um, I was a GP in the UK for around ten years. I mean, I, I mean, I had started off in like you. I mean, surgery, trauma, casualty jobs. But while after few years in general practice I really reached a point and I felt that my brain was like desperate for stimulation and I just needed to get out um, so I kind of looked around for inspiration for a next move and, and it was very difficult because at the time you felt like you were a failure if you were leaving something like a career in in general practice but Luckily, I did a career seminar, which just opened my eyes to the fact that there were a number of people who attended who were all doctors at different stages of their careers, from house officers to professors, and everybody just wanted to do something different. Um, following that, I managed to do a formal careers counselling course, which was really helpful. Best money I've ever spent. And then the pharmaceutical industry was mentioned as an option. Although it sounded really interesting, I didn't really understand what working in industry really involved. But ultimately, it was really the best move, you know, that I'd ever made. I mean, it was a leap of faith, but a great career move. I mean, as a GP, I'd interacted positively with pharma from my perspective. I mean, I'd assisted in um, chairing meetings, leading workshops, taking part in, you know, market research and other activities. But, you know, it was difficult to, to know what it really meant until I actually joined pharma. But I mean, that said, I mean, I have the utmost respect for the integrity of all the colleagues I've met in pharma um, from all areas of the industry. And especially, as I say, the constant intellectual challenge and stimulation has just been, you know, fabulous from my perspective. Well, we're going to get on to some of the negatives in, in, a, in a few minutes, um, because 
there there is a perception among some sections of society that the pharma industry they're the evil corporations and uh, you know my experience of working with mostly medical device companies but also pharma and biotech is that it is largely populated with people who are kind caring very very smart and have a very strong moral compass so i just wanted to back what you said but let's sort of start at the top and work backwards you've got many many years experience in the industry that side of medicine across multiple specialties so it's not just like cardiology or infectious diseases but diverse products and projects what were your most interesting challenges or or your proudest achievements or both okay i i suppose for me the the biggest challenge really was when i first joined the industry from general practice so I, I I clearly had a medical background but I didn't know what the industry was about and it was really trying to develop and have a clear understanding of the various aspects of the pharmaceutical in- industry you know really both medical and non-medical I mean then there were many areas there um, that I just didn't have a clue about so you know pre-clinical clinical development chemical farm development regulatory drug safety you know marketing sales communication etc etc and I, I think I used to drive my regulatory colleagues bonkers because for about a year I kept asking them what do they do and they kind of explained it to me and I still didn't quite get it so that was a, a huge challenge realizing that there was this big world out there that you know us as medics who prescribed drugs didn't really have a clue about so so that was probably number one i mean secondly the the big issue within pharma has always been to demonstrate the value of of medical uh, medical department medical working because we're just seen as a cost center because we don't produce anything as such we're not marketing we're not sales um, and we're just a, a seen as a, a cost and within that also showing that I myself bring value to a role within pharma as a, as a medic. So, so those, so those are kind of the, you know, kind of big challenges that, that might not seem obvious to people. I mean, other challenges just generally have been like getting, getting products to market and helping to get products to market uh, uh, with unrestricted access for patients and prescribers. So that's a, a big hurdle that we, uh, that we have to get through in, in pharma and, and a huge challenge. And obviously, there have been personal challenges, challenges within work, you know, trying to change people's mindsets about materials or anything like that. Uh, but but those would be probably among the the bigger challenges. I think I've had a lot of proud achievements. I've worked with um, you know my involvement with a great number of multidisciplinary teams, but but working with lovely teams in being able to launch products um, that were able to help or are still able to help doctors to help patients. In a broad range of specialties, as you say, I've been really lucky within the industry to be involved in several product launches, which often uh, medics don't get involved in that that commonly. So meningitis C vaccinations, antidepressants, various antidepressants, product for Alzheimer's disease, sleep disorder, oncology treatment for advanced squamous cell carcinoma, and being involved in the development of many other products. So, So those things have been fabulous from my perspective. I mean, additionally, I, I'm proud of um, having been able to develop relationships with a number of sort of senior healthcare professionals all around the world in the different therapy areas that I've worked with, being seen as a respected partner by them, by by other HCPs and by patients, and proud of the fact that I've been able to help in bringing high-quality medical education via things like a symposia, seminars, and just collaborating with healthcare practitioners. So kind of those are probably some of, there's probably more, um, but those are the ones that probably come to mind first of all for me. You know, what you're describing is, the words might be slightly different, but you're describing a very fulfilling career that helps bring relief to people who are living with disease and the resultant fear and trepidation, which is, of course, one of our big things. And, you know, I was listening and I'm reflecting on if someone had asked me that question. Yeah, I loved operating on people, but I loved being involved in the education of the next wave of doctors or surgeons. And I loved the international collaborations because it's about human connectivity. And, you know, it's not surprising to hear you particularly frame your answer in that manner. But let's dig a little bit into the industry because 
Many people listening in may be doctors or other healthcare practitioners, but many are not. And I'd wager that the large majority, even of doctors, don't know about the different roles physicians can play within the pharmaceutical, biotech and medtech industries. Yes, you can be a, a research scientist or you can be an inventor of a compound or a device. But there are this range of jobs, medical affairs, clinical operations, various medical directorships and all the other jobs that doctors might do. And I know that many young medical students or GPs who are a little bit less than satisfied with what they're doing might not even know that such jobs exist. So can you sort of give us, I don't know, about 30,000 feet, but you know, maybe descend a little bit into the, the granularity and tell us about the job opportunities? I must confess, as I said to you earlier, uh, when I uh, joined the industry, I really didn't have a clue uh, about what a medic could do within the industry or what the role of it. I mean, one of the reasons I actually joined was I wanted to do anything but medicine, as most doctors do. And I remember saying to my careers counsellor at the time that I'm, uh, I'm only qualified enough to be a doctor and that's all I'm good for. And he laughed and he said, uh, do you know what? Half the population would be happy if that was all they were good enough for. But I thought I want to get away from medicine. And so industry was a, a mix of, of, you know, marketing maybe. In, and, and I thought I would maybe move away. So, I mean, that said, there are so many roles that medical doctors can do in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, my roles have predominantly been in the area that's called medical affairs. And that's normally after a drug or a treatment or a, a device has been licensed and is out in the population. And, and in my role, I work very closely with many teams, um, especially marketing and clinical development um, and sort of regulatory drug safety, but ensuring that the everything that we, we say and do in terms of patient information or medical information or medical education is said in the correct way uh, and using the right amount of data and up-to-date data. So that's one of the roles and, and a lot of doctors who first start in the industry join in that sort of a role. Uh, but saying that, um, you can start at various other stages. So if you started quite early in uh, pharmaceutical industry, you might well be involved in clinical development or research. I mean, when I used to tell people that I worked, I was a doctor in the pharmaceutical industry, most people just asked, assumed that I was a, a rep. So they said, oh, so you're a rep. And I had to sort of explain, no, what this is what I do. And I ended up just because people didn't seem to understand medical affairs, I would say I do research, which I've done a bit, but not a huge amount. So the clinical development is where you're involved in in designing studies and protocols for all of the clinical trials that would be used to be able to eventually uh, achieve a drug license for a product. So so that's kind of really interesting and really technical and really challenging. You may have a career in pharmacovigilance, um, which is uh, what we would uh, call as drug safety. In that role, you're, you're constantly monitoring a product, either that's one in development, so not out in the market yet, but making sure that uh, that you're capturing it, all safety um, information and, and putting it in the context of uh, the, the benefit the drug does, and then carrying on through licensing. So from a pharmacovigilance perspective, the pharmacovigilance uh, physicians would would constantly be looking at the risk benefit for the for a product and and this obviously will will alter um, the longer the time that it's out in the market the more patients are exposed to it and the more safety data you get the more efficacy data you get then in the clinical development side uh, you might have an area called clinical ops so this is more around the technical side of of a clinical study so i described sort of protocol development but this would be how you capture data how you design a clinical research form so that you can capture the patient information how do you produce patient information and all of those side of things then as you move further up or in fact all through that process you have what we call regulatory and and regulatory is the department which works very closely with the licensing authorities and um, in the UK this is the MHRA many people will have heard in the US the FDA and throughout Europe EMA but there are many such organizations around the world and the regulatory people make sure that all of the data about the product from the 
early work to the all the scientific data is collated, put in the correct order and submitted to the authorities constantly to either get a license or to maintain a license. And then there are various other areas, such as business development, where you might be advising a company on, you know, which products they should look at, which uh, devices they should look at, and whether they, you know, have a market and a potential or an unmet medical need. And nowadays, they have a big field called um, health outcomes or market access. And this is where you would look at not only clinical benefits for patients, but also outcomes such as patient satisfaction and, and you know, whether whether somebody's mobility might increase as a result of, for example, an arthritis drug or something. So those are just a few of the areas, but there are there are kind of medics involved in several different areas in the industry. And some of my colleagues have actually gone on to move to the commercial side. So they've not only done the medical aspects, but then they've done gone into marketing and some have even become, you know, chief executive officers or managing directors of pharmaceutical companies. So it's an entire range of career paths. And I don't know, maybe the pharmaceutical industry ought to think of reaching out to med schools to do or to develop courses to educate people. I think it might be. And for the general public as well to understand that, you know, there's a huge amount of medical input and medical oversight as these new compounds and and devices are developed. So you mentioned a little earlier in, in your sort of proudest achievements answer a little bit about education, but can you can you explain to us the different ways a drug or device company might might educate different groups? Because you know, there's doctors, there's the general public, there's operating room nurses, there's infection control nurses. So, and that changes throughout a product's life cycle. Let's just assume for a minute, if you could keep the answer generic, because we're going to come on to international differences in a bit. In essence, I mean, it's very difficult to educate the public easily, sorry, due to compliance and legal framework, especially in the EU and most of the world outside of the US. I mean, we can educate patients about the disease, but often not specifically about a product. But you can do that maybe when a product's out in the market, but it would only be to people who are receiving that therapy. So because we're not allowed to promote to the public, but but, you know, we'll have all seen campaigns that do things like that. So that's how you would educate the public. So we'll have seen campaigns around, you know, every year we see flu vaccination campaigns or COVID, or you might see things about have you got impotence or you might, you know, areas like that. So you can talk about disease generally to the public from an education perspective at any stage of the product life cycle. You have to be very careful if you're the only product in a therapy area. So if you're the only company making a new compound, you you know, it's very hard to even do a disease education for, for the patients because, or the public, because it can be seen as a sort of early promotion to the public. So, so that's really from a patient perspective. But pharma does work very closely with patients and patient groups and advocacy groups in, in early stages of clinical development. So it helps advocacy groups to understand what clinical studies are happening and also have input into the design so that they can feed in and say, you know, if you did it this way, it would be easier for a patient if you had, you know, less visits or if you made the form less complicated and so on. And often the education will be along those lines about the study protocol. And then a lot of the patient groups are, are really helpful in helping to recruit for studies. So that that's from the patient side or the public side of things. Healthcare practitioners can be educated at all stages of a product life cycle. So really from early stage of development. And, and this is usually done by means of, you know, making sure that you publish all of your data as best as possible or you attempt to publish it and disseminate it, um, ideally in scientific peer review publications. And then also posters, abstracts at congresses, and then medical education um, you can use uh, various platforms so they could be things like online platforms such as we see you know medscape or you know doctors.org there are a lot of places that have education and journals like yours um, so the fact is that that can be done you can have podcasts you can have symposia 
And within uh, devices for surgical companies or surgical techniques and equipment, I'm aware that there's often a lot of training, either on things like animal laboratories, animal cadavers, or you have some virtual reality training, or even in vivo training, as you described in theatre, to um, to assist with learning of, of how to use new equipment or, or new process. I mean, there are other areas where you may have patients receiving things like renal dialysis or a need to do some self-administration for an infusion therapy, for example, for, say, uh, either immunotherapy or immunoglobulin therapy or haemophilia. And often companies will, in collaboration sometimes with healthcare, with other healthcare providers, you know, they will have community-based centres that will train patients, train relatives, maybe train nurses, train doctors and so on. It's fair to say, isn't it, that regulations differ around the world. And you're talking about companies that operate around the world. So they have to be, or you have to be, if that's your responsibility, really clued up on the regulations so you don't inadvertently do something. Because I don't think you'd look good in orange, frankly. You mentioned challenges earlier. What about some of the challenges and solutions that are involved in bringing a new medicine or drug to market? Again, just give us a a sense. I know it's an immensely complex field, but I'd just like the listeners to understand that this isn't a simple matter of dream up a compound, mix it up in a test tube, press it into a pill, and off, off to the races. Yeah, I must confess, I, I probably thought like that when I was a GP. I thought, you know, a bunch of people from a car, from a pharma company met in a pub at a weekend and designed a study on the back of a fag packet. And then uh, then they, then it came out on a, on a Monday or a Tuesday with a new drug. So it, it, it's much more complicated. So it's thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, let me just start, John, with some facts and figures that might surprise people. So kind of the average time to bring a drug to market and these are some figures from probably 2020 or so it's around 10 and a half years or more with a with a range of about 10 to 15 years to actually bring a, a, a successful or not even a successful drug just bringing a drug out to market so that's that's a very long time in a device company this could be something like three to seven years with a with a device i mean from the time that a chemical is is found in the lab and maybe a patent's taken out you may have a 20-year patent so half of or three quarters of the time that you have to actually commercialize a product is lost already in the development process the associated costs i mean vary i mean depending on which source that you look at or, or read but from the time that i started in the industry about 25 years ago it was around $400 million potentially to develop a, a product. But now I've seen figures as high as sorry, a billion or even $2.6 billion. And then uh, what people may not realize is about approximately only one in 10 chemicals that may be a trialed in a human, in, and I'll describe the phases in a minute, um, in a human, uh, make it through the, all the hurdles and into the market. And I think the costs for a device, I think I said about 2.6 for a pharma product, could be in the range of 30 to $100 million for a pharmaceutical device. There are many challenges to bring a product to market. And this starts at the earliest stages of just having, as you described, a little bit of white powder in a lab. For example, if you started off with a white powder, it could be any color, but you've got to work out, is it soluble? Because if it's not soluble, then it can't be used. Can it easily be made in the lab? Can it then easily be scaled up to be manufactured in a, in a bigger amount or just even in sufficient amount of a couple of tons to be started in animal trials? There are an extensive batch of mandatory testing in, in either animal models of disease to see whether a compound might work in a particular disease you know, via an animal model. And then subsequent to that, from a safety and efficacy perspective, before it goes anywhere near man there are a series of requirements legally worldwide that require tests in various species of, of, of animals mice rats guinea pigs um, it could even be primates and, and pigs are used a lot and these are essentially to work out potential efficacy what what a what a, a dose could be that you could go to a human with toxicity I mean, carcinogenicity, um, effects on fertility, effects on future generations. So these are sort of a, a huge range of animal testing. And that's what soaks up a lot of the costs 
I mean, once you've kind of gone through the hurdles and, and, and proved that the, in, in an animal work, in preclinical, that's what, was what we call it, that the compound is is potentially safe to go into man then you know you would you would move on to the next stage but clearly a compound can fall down at any of the stages that i described above in the testing around toxicity carcinogenicity etc then you then you end up having to go through the stages in in human subjects and patients the first of this we call phase one and it's normally in human volunteers um, other than in oncology or cancer products, which really don't have human volunteers because oncology products are inherently toxic. Um, and so the phase one is done in, in patients at this early stage. And this is essentially to determine a couple of things. So so mainly, is the, the drug safe and potentially effective? And is there a dose that would appear a bit more effective? But it's really all about safety. And, and we often in these trials do two things as well, a thing known as pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. So one is to see where the drug goes around in the body, what the body does to the drug. And then the second one is pharmacodynamics, which means what the drug does to the body. So, you know, what therapeutic effects it has and it, what adverse effects it might have. So, so this stage happens, and this is usually in males, very rarely in females and definitely not in children. Again, a drug can fall down at this hurdle, and a number of the one in ten products that I was saying will could fall down in in phase one. And then uh, you move on to the next stage when that hurdle's passed to a series of trials. It may be one, two trials, or three, in what we call phase two. And these are in patients who have a particular disease that you're aiming to treat with your compound. But the patients are essentially pretty healthy, so they don't often have other diseases or comorbidities. And you normally have a, a trial design that tra tests the compound that you're trialing versus placebo in the population because you know to know absolutely what does that drug do in a person as opposed to a, a placebo. And again, as in every stage, what you're really concerned about is mainly safety, and then there is also efficacy. And then if the drug passes that hurdle, then often a decision is made based on your results and your data. And that's often a go-no-go -no -go point in, in clinical trial development is whether you move on to the next phase, which is called phase three. And in a phase three trial, then you often will compare the therapy that you want in the dose that you have decided on, or maybe doses, with another drug. And it could be a drug that might be considered a standard of care that's out in the community that's licensed. And then you do this in either to determine whether it's equivalent or non-inferior or beneficial versus the other compound. I mean, throughout that process, like various parameters are looked at for the disease. So disease improvement, but loads of safety parameters and increasingly now various patient health outcomes and, and utilization measures so that we can see whether it's not only of clinical benefit but whether it's of societal benefit and it maybe improves physical functioning and so on. So here is another hurdle where things could could go wrong or, or hopefully right. But main reasons really for failure at any of these stages is, is usually safety and tolerability and then sometimes efficacy. So at this stage, once we have all of this data and it's all positive, then they're submitted to the authorities for licensing consideration. But subsequent to licensing, you will probably have various ongoing trials or monitoring requirements, which are known as risk management plan or risk uh, minimization measures. And this is involves monitoring of patients. So it may well be in certain drugs or therapy areas, you might have to do ECGs before you give a patient the therapy and or various tests to check renal function and so on and at that point you may hopefully get a license but then there are further hurdles for demonstrating cost efficacy cost effectiveness and that's to achieve reimbursement of your product it's fantastic it's fantastic it, it, it was um and i think it makes perfect sense uh, for everyone and actually it's a perfect lead on to my next question we know that costs are going up in britain we have nice the national institutes of clinical excellence that, that look at cost impacts in america hospitals have value analysis committees and formulas and decide what is and isn't on i saw that you were an author of a paper that was presented at the international society of pharmacoeconomic outcomes research in milan a few years back 
And I checked on my calendar. I was actually at the same meeting as you there on the surgical uh, issue. Uh, give us give us a very brief perspective on costs in medicine and where this is all going. Yeah. In the old days, there were said to be the three hurdles, which was the, the phase one to three of drug development. Um, and about 10 or 15 years ago, probably, now we saw what was called a fourth hurdle, and that's achieving reimbursement. So having a license in the old days was fine because once you had a license, you could have a price for a product and then it was out of the market. And, and I guess the free market economy decided whether it was used or not. So NICE and other bodies that, are, that which they have all over Europe, um, there's a big group now of all of the EMA countries called UNETA, which is aimed to try and, and sort of do it in, as a one-hit regulatory sort of and reimbursement sort of review. It's really difficult. I guess from we, we see it from different sides of things. So from a societal point of view, NICE and so on are, are really important and also also from a farmer point of view, but we often see NICE and so on as a bit of a hurdle um, and trying to put a break on drug development and, and sort of, you know, having drugs out on the market. I mean, it's appropriate that drugs are reviewed and, and I guess just to not, not only for just efficacy, which is what the license is and safety, but also for cost, so for cost efficacy. But the problem is that because some drugs take, as I've showed you know, demonstrated earlier about uh, the cost of uh, drug development, that money has to be recouped. And so often drugs are, are a higher price. You can't always show the cost efficacy that's required to have a drug reimbursed. So sometimes that that hurdle of reimbursement can be an issue and it could maybe suppress development of, of drugs and therapies in, in other areas such as rare diseases where it's very, very expensive to come up with therapy. They have a place. There isn't plenty of money sloshing about. And as we know at the moment, certainly after COVID and now with all of the other sort of societal issues that are happening around the world, um, you know, money is tight. And so there has to be some form of rationing, but it can be seen as a bit of a disincentive sometimes to develop uh, drugs and, and treatments. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned uh, rare diseases. Give us a brief description of what an orphan product is and some of the implications surrounding it. I mean, what we call orphan products are, are essentially products for orphan diseases. I mean, that seems fairly obvious. But an orphan disease is essentially a rare disease and that's normally an area where there are few if any treatments available or licensed for management of that condition. Now an orphan designation varies uh, from region to region but it's usually a disease where the population prevalence in the nature of one person in 1250 to about one person in 3,000 in the population. They're very rare. They're very small numbers of patients. I think in the US, it said that an orphan disease is something which is under 200,000 patients in the population. I mean, the diseases have to be life-threatening or chronically debilitating. To receive what we call an orphan designation from the regulatory authorities, you can also have a product that maybe is going to cost more to develop than you will recoup. But I don't know many philanthropic companies or people that are, are going to, to, to do that. And then the, the medication has to provide some significant benefit. So orphan diseases essentially are very rare and are very small diseases so that's that's kind of really orphan diseases and interestingly enough less than five percent of more than seven thousand rare diseases have an effective treatment diseases that really have no so the implication of when you go into these fields is that these are going to be high cost inevitably i mean they will provide benefit for a, a, a small defined population but they may be difficult to achieve reimbursement clearly as cost benefit is really hard to show but, you know, over the years, and, and EMA uh, certainly, and, and I know the FDA as well, are encouraging companies to work in the orphan area, develop therapies for orphan diseases. And I think in 2020, EMA had actually licensed 32 treatments for orphan diseases. And that's an increase in, in, in what they had done in previous years. We've talked about costs in America, direct to consumer DTC advertising promotion of products, pharma products is allowed. 
something it's a great idea helping ensure people are educated it's their disease after all others say it drives unnecessary costs into the system and frustrates doctors because people turn up saying i want such and such product what does jubert gamma have to say should the uk allow such marketing and you've been very very uh, good and have not mentioned the name of any companies which is obviously very sensible but but tell us what does jubert gamma think I mean, this is obviously my my personal opinion. So, I mean, but a lot of this is governed by compliance and and the legal framework. So, most countries outside of the 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 US, and certainly in my experience, I've worked a lot in the EU and some of the rest of the world. They do not allow any of the direct to consumer advertising. I mean, as you've described, there are some pros. I mean, some of the pros of a direct-to-consumer are considered to be, although the only pro really, would be that it may alert patients to a therapy that they might not have heard of from their GP or their healthcare practitioner. So that's one positive area. The cons that are often seen from direct-to-consumer advertising are things like the fact that the advertising may may downplay safety. By having to spend on direct-to-consumer advertising, it could push drug costs up. You know, it may overstate the health benefits of a, of a compound or a product and push the use of a drug up. And so those are the sort of cons. From, from my perspective, I, I don't think that we should be allowed to promote directly to patients. I mean, I know that there is a lot of um, call for, you know, greater transparency and patients to understand everything. But I think we can do that in a a better way by educating healthcare practitioners better to be able to educate their patients. And I think we need to be very responsible how we advertise drugs and devices because they can have great benefits as I, I, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be working in this industry. But on the other hand, we've seen that they can have great issues. And there've been many cases from the US where pharma has misrepresented the the benefits of a product and, and downplayed the safety of products. So it was things like the appetite suppressants. I mean, and these have resulted in, you know, huge fines and huge issues for large swathes of the population, which is absolutely shocking. So I I don't, I wouldn't want to go the way of the US myself. Continue on this topic a little bit as we're we're nearing the end. There are some folks known as pharma scolds, and they delight in attacking the healthcare industry. And pretty much a spoiler alert, I have been and remain a vociferous critic of that approach. I don't like, you know, you can disagree, just don't be disagreeable. One of their premises is that scientific journals shouldn't include pharmaceutical adver- advertisements. So these are journals, for those not in the know, that are read by healthcare professionals, highly technical journals. They are normally, you, you obtain them with a subscription that's quite expensive um, because the process of producing these journals is pricey. You know, and I subscribe to a number of journals. The advertisements keep the cost of the subscription down. But there are some say that shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be allowed. What, what do you think about that? Are these ads beneficial? I'll keep my opinion to myself, but I know what I think. Yeah, it's difficult to know. I mean, I mean, how beneficial they are. Um, when I talk to my marketing colleagues, certainly, um, it's all considered as part of what we call the product mix. So it's about getting information out about uh, a product or a therapy area or a medical device. I think whatever is said and done in advertising um, is is always appropriate and correct, uh, and it's all within the codes of practice um, that are allowed. I think if you didn't have advertising in, in, in journals, as you say, the costs would be astronomical. No HCP would be able to do it. And practically every Congress is only viable um, because of the huge costs that are charged to pharmaceutical companies, you know, to have a stand, to have advertising and so on. This is slightly different from the journals, but 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 it's all part of that mix. And, and without it, I don't think uh, MedEd would exist really as we as we know it. All over the world, I mean, not just in the in the UK and, and, and Europe, and it's everywhere. There are various codes of practice that govern compliance in advertising. So you've got codes from the WHO, you've got the International Pharmaceutical Marketing Association. In Europe, we have FBA, we have a PMCPA in the UK and the FDA guidance in, in the US. 
So pharma companies really abide by all of this and keep within the legal framework. They have compliance teams in pharma. And in fact, one of my jobs over 23 years now has been as a final signatory. So a senior medical signatory where I sign everything off uh, to make sure that everything is legal, compliant, and that includes advertising. And it's normally in the UK, a senior medic, or it can be a senior pharmacist, uh, but a lot of countries it's a medic. So, I mean, I think we've got controls in place for this. I think it's a good thing. Additionally, when you have an advertisement in in a journal, it's normally sort of accompanied with prescribing information, which is mandatory and and the cost information is enough to give you a risk benefit of the product. And so theoretically, that information should be enough to allow a clinician to, you know, make a decision on whether to use something, but how to use it in a safe and appropriate way. But essentially, it's down to the healthcare practitioner to get as much information and comfort as they need to use a product. I'm, I'm, I personally don't believe that if a physician sees an advertisement, they go, oh, right, well, I'm going to prescribe that without digging in. I know that our colleagues are very, very diligent. And, you know, if I look at a device, I always want to see it, hold it, talk to people, learn all I can. But yeah, it's another way of learning about what's out there. I agree with you. I mean, it's just give it, it's having the name out there to remind people there's a product for X. But I think, as you say, nobody, nobody would uh, use it just because they see an advert and, uh, and that would be the intention. Just a quickie, Ad- adherence, sticking to therapeutic regimes, compliance. It's an important product for pharma companies because patients, largely speaking, don't do as we tell them to or they forget to take their tablets or they don't pick the prescription up. There are business implications, but there's also implications for the outcome. You know, the company spends, as we've heard, up to 2.6 billion developing a drug. And then people say, well, I know I'm supposed to take it three times a day, but I'm only taking it once a day. What Has Pharma got any new tricks up its sleeve to help people remember to take their meds as they're supposed to? I mean, I wish it was that easy. Um, I think there are various tools available. Clearly, you have apps that can help patients monitor their condition, remind you of taking medication. You can have things like call centers, callbacks, nurses that will call and and advise people about taking their medication um, and so on. I think it it was interesting that you said that they don't, patients don't do as we tell them. And I think that's possibly the issue. Um, we talk about compliance, adherence and concordance. And I think the best thing is concordance. And it's really where the healthcare practitioner is transparent with the patient about how to manage their choices and all the choices that they might have for treatment and the long-term treatment goals. And then you get agreement from the patient or the relatives with the management plan. And then you reinforce that with adequate training so that the the patients know exactly what to do and they get materials they have availability of things like digital or online support and whatever so i i think it's kind of a partnership and that's for the patient to understand why they need to take something when they need to take it how to take it safely how not to stop something or how to stop something when they when they should so i think it's a it's a kind of mix of everything but a lot of it it's it's the trust between the patient and an agreement between the patient and the healthcare practitioner i like that concordance yeah typical surgeon it's never that didactic so i i saw Joubert, that you did some work on gene therapy for hemophilia And I've been seeing the news that this seems to offer real hope. Is gene therapy the next big thing? Is controlling costs or dealing with complex regulations the sort of thing that keeps industry leaders up at night? Give us your most exciting and biggest challenges for the industry, like as bullet points. I mean, I'd say generally you've summed it up in your question, really. I think controlling costs and and the worry about increasing regulatory and budgetary hurdles are an ongoing issue that will keep all pharma, um, you know, uh, awake, uh, you know, constantly. I don't think gene therapy is necessarily the next big thing, though it's certainly, you know, really important development. I think what people don't realise or maybe m- don't know is that you know gene therapy is not so straightforward you have to have a disease that really has just one gene potentially that that is a defective so not a multifactorial and a lot of 
diseases we know now have you know several genes that can cause the problem so if you don't have a single gene it's not easy to do technically there's probably gene therapies for for illnesses that the, the successful ones for that maybe you have one in a million patient numbers and so the fact is these therapies are going to be really expensive there are issues with gene therapy potentially with immune response of the patients making sure that the gene vector uh, which is normally a virus, doesn't cause a, a viral infection. It's also important that the gene just works in the place that it's meant to work. And often you, you, you have to monitor for years for things like tumours and infection and so on. So there are loads of challenges with gene therapy. Not sure if it's the next big thing necessarily, but I think it's really important that research continues in the areas because normally if it's successful, it can give a cure which is very rare with um, any pharmaceutical intervention, really. Yeah. I love, uh, to finish, Joubert, I love asking all my guests this question. If Joubert Gamma had three wishes that could lead to improved healthcare around the world, so let's make it global, what would Joubert wish for? Oh, dear. That's a big, hairy task. I think number one would be the ability for everybody across the globe to have either free or very cost-effective point of care, you know, so for the diagnosis of their disease, the management of their disease, but 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 to have this across the board, um, everywhere across the world. I think number two, possibly, would be that, I mean, non-medical areas, so things like social deprivation, hygiene, sanitation, are really you know, really improved, really good across the world. Most illness is tied up with social deprivation, social inequality. So I think it's a, it's a non-medical solution. Uh, and my last one would be that from a, a holistic point of view, that patients are looked at as a whole and that they are involved in their care and the management and that we educate the doctors to educate the patients to understand the need for either their therapy or health care intervention, you know, exercise, simple things like that. So I think it's those sort of three kind of buckets, I would say. Fantastic. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. I want to thank my friend, Dr. Joubert Gamma, for taking the time to share his perspectives of a brilliant career that is still going on. And I'm sure there's many more achievements. Joubert, lovely speaking to you. And I hope we can get together soon for some, I don't know, some live jazz, some football. And of course, we've got our upcoming medical school reunion. I'm really looking forward to all of that. And hopefully this season, uh, Tottenham win the premiership. Oh, from your mouth. <laughs> from your mouth. I hope I hope I haven't cursed them. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those who don't know, there is a, a, a dictionary entry to be Spursy, which is the abbreviation <laughs> Spurs. To be Spursy is to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> so, anyway, it's all it's all joyous. I hope everyone's enjoyed this episode. Please like us on social media, tell your friends, and tune in next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Until next time, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Mm-hmm.